welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Uh, again, my name is Micah. If we haven't met, uh, welcome to you. We're in week two of a series called Wells and Fences. So if you're wondering why there's a fountain and so a fence in here, Menards only sells fountains, not wells. So that's that. Um, hopefully you can use your imagination. Um, but this series is a series that's really asking the question, what kind of community do we want to be? And this is a series as much about how we hold our beliefs as much as it is about our beliefs. And uh, we talked last week about two different ways in which spiritual communities often organize themselves. Uh, one could be called the bounded set, one could be called the centered set. So I drew last week, but we moved this to digital form for going forward. On the left, you have a bounded set, and on the right, you have a centered set. On the left, there's, uh, the, the beliefs of a community end up being essentially a fence uh, that determines who's in and who's out. And the question that matters most in a bounded set is, do you believe what we believe? On the contrary, what matters most, or the question that matters most in a centered set community is, are you thirsty? Uh, are you moving towards the middle? Are you moving towards the center? And for us, uh, we are a community that has a specific purpose and intention. We don't um, sell widgets, but we're a spiritual community. And at the center of this community, in the well, as it were, is the life and teachings and death and resurrection of Jesus the Christ. Make no mistake about it. That's what's in the center of this community. So today, uh, we are continuing that series, and we're going to be looking at six affirmations over the next six weeks that stand in the center of the denomination that we're a part of, which is called the Evangelical Covenant Church. Now, if you didn't grow up in the covenant, I didn't. Um, so, hi, nice to see you. Um, but hopefully at the end of this, you at least get a sense of who these people are and who they've been over the course of history. Uh, they are uh, a group of people that began out of Scandinavia, a, re a renewal movement and a revival at, of sorts called pietism. If you've ever heard someone called pious uh, or piety, uh, there was a movement in the late 1800s called pietism, and that's where these folks come from. So then they immigrate to America, and here we are. 1885 was the beginning of the Evangelical Covenant Church, so over 130 years ago. Um, <clears throat> these six affirmations in many ways, have served as the well in the center of the covenant story. Uh, they very much have been led by this spirit of major on the majors, minor on the minors. Uh, you can often hear covenanters saying, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. And so these affirmations are basically, uh, they would argue, and I would argue, what must you retain to retain orthodox Christianity? and nothing more. So it's sort of the bare bones, this is the center, this is the well, as it were. So affirmation number one is the centrality of the word of God. Uh, they would say it this way, that the Holy Scriptures, both Old and New Testament, is the word of God and the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. Now you might notice a couple of words that are missing there from normal conversations about the Bible, infallible or inerrant. The covenanters did... They were, they were centrists, and so they said, we choose not to be any more precise than this, which I love, right? It's basically, they're not, not interested in getting into all the fray and the arguments about these things, but are saying something very important about the scriptures. It's the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct for the believers. Historically, this group of Peter, people, they were known as the readers because they loved the scriptures so, so deeply. 
They often would be guided by principles, uh, a few of which I'll share. Uh, they, would, they were humble when they came to the scriptures. So they came with open hands and open hearts uh, when they read the scriptures. They came communally, so they recognized that they were together, a community of people, sacred community, and the importance of reading together and challenging one another together. They came uh, rigorously, so they would say that not just the pastors are the, the theologians, but all of us together as the church are theologians, so they would rigorously read the scriptures. And then charitably, uh, that my perspective is one perspective. It's not the only one, and so together we all bring something to the text. And then they would, they would come to the Bible holistically. They understood the story of God to be about all of creation, not just about souls. So this morning I want to talk about the scriptures, and I want to talk about the nature of the Bible and how we got it, and then the nature of the God behind the Bible. That's kind of what I want to do this morning, and I want to begin with a couple of questions. Like, what is the Bible? What's the point of this book? Like, if you were to stop and press pause and just think critically for a few moments, like, what's the point of this? Why do we even have it? Why is it authoritative for many who follow Jesus? Why does this serve as an authority in people's lives? Why is it transformative? Maybe you've met somebody whose life has been transformed by the Bible. Why, how does that happen? Why does that happen? Now, warning, just for a moment, um, pause. I'm going to poke the bear a little bit here this morning. I, I, I'm, I might rattle the cage just a bit. We come from a tradition, Protestantism. Ironically, we're in an old Catholic church. Um, but Martin Luther, if you remember, tacked the, the letter on the door of the church in Wittenberg in uh, like 1500s. And we come from a tradition called Protestantism. Protestantism. And Martin Luther said something that was very important in that Reformation movement, which was sola scriptura, scripture alone, right? In, in, in response to all that was happening and the critiques that were being leveled against the Catholic Church, Luther says sola scriptura, only scripture should guide us. Now, I understand what Luther was doing by saying what he was saying, but I think Luther might actually be, I think he might have thoughts about where we've taken that. And the the place that the Bible has held in many communities, which might not actually be healthy. So I'm going to poke the bear here a little bit, and I want you to remember who you're listening to. Remember, I'm your pastor. I love you. I love the Bible a great deal. It's the work of my life, so it's of great value and import to me, but I am going to challenge it a little bit, and I'm going to, hopefully, maybe, I might challenge you to think differently about it this morning, all right? So just be forewarned. If you feel the need to throw anything, wait till the end till you hear me out, okay? And then if you disagree, go for it. So I want to ask a couple of questions this morning about the nature of Scripture and the nature of God, all right? So stand if you can. We'll read from John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. The Word was with God. And he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that had been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, but he came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, 
To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor of husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now this won't be on the screen, but this is from Mark's gospel. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? And when they looked up, they saw the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man, dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Do not be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Pray with me. God, as we center our hearts and our minds around these words, this book, these holy scriptures, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, this would be an act of revelation, not because of anything I say, but because of who you are and what you want to do in this room today. So give us ears to hear you. Give us eyes to see you, I pray, in the strong name of the resurrected Jesus and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. Did anybody ever go to vacation Bible school? You guys remember VBS? Yeah, a couple of you. Pam Gall hosted vacation Bible school for me. Do you remember the song about the Bible? The B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God. The B-I-B-L-E. Yeah, well done. Well done. Give yourselves a round. I was a little nervous about that. I was a little nervous. I was practicing in my car, and I thought, geez, I sure hope they join me. What's the problem with that song? The B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. I mean, we read John chapter 1, right? In the beginning, the word was with God, and the word was God. Yet we have this song that says, the B-I-B-L-E, that's, that's the book for me, I stand alone on the word of God, the Bible. Maybe you could think about it this way. When we say the word of God, often, many Christians assume you're talking about this, the Bible. It's the word of God. The word of God. That's as good as I, that's about as, as I, I'm never going to be that guy. <clears throat> for John... When he wrote John, what was the scriptures, what was the word of God for John? When Paul wrote to Timothy and he says, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking and exhorting, what's he referring to? All scripture. For the people who wrote the books that we now call the word of God, what was the word of God for them? See, Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, many of the books in the New Testament, he wrote... Uh, in between, let's call it like 50 and 100 AD. And he's writing books that we now call the Word of God. But I would suggest to you that it's very possible that Paul didn't know that he was writing the Word of God. He was writing a letter to Rome. He was writing a letter to Corinth, a letter to Ephesus, a letter to Galatia. So when Paul says the Scriptures are God-breathed, was he talking about what he was writing? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. Some would argue, yes, he did. Some would argue, probably not. I would go with probably not. 
Here's the key that I want, to start, I want to try to tease a little bit and pull some threads on this morning. When your faith is based on the Bible, it's really easy to start pulling threads and the thing begins to unravel. When somebody asks you about your faith and you say, well, the Bible, it says here in the Bible, dot, 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 you should believe that. I think that there's actually a stronger argument that you could make. I think that there's a way in which you could, let me say it this way, if your faith is based on the Bible, you could be in tricky, you could be in a tricky spot. But if your faith is based on something else, then I think you might be standing on firmer ground even. So what do I mean by that? What is the Bible? How do we get it? Let's talk about the nature of the book itself, right? Uh, when I was in seminary, I started learning about all this. I didn't really care up to that point. I don't know if you're at that point today. You're just like, I don't know. It's the Bible. Cool. Maybe you've thought about this. I hadn't. But here's a little timeline in terms of like how we got this book in our hands right now, right? In a hundred, that's the, um, most people would argue all of the books of the Bible that we would say are the Bible, 66 books, there's 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, by about a hundred, everybody would agree, that's when they were all penned and written, okay? It's not until 200 that a church father named Origen is using a list of the 27 books of the New Testament. At that time, most people agreed what the Old te- or the, the scriptures were, right? Torah, the prophets and the writings, what we would consider the Old Testament, was what they said is scripture, okay? So it's not until 200 that Origen has a list that we now have the 27 books of the, what we have as the canon. By the way, the word canon, it's, it means rule, and it's another word for the Bible, okay? So the canon or the scriptures. Uh, it's not until 367 that a guy named Athanasius writes an Easter letter with a list of the New Testament canon as we now have it. And it's not until even later than that at this synod in uh, North Africa that the first official presentation of the 27 books of the Bible, New Testament, uh, that we have is given. It's not till like 419 at a council that Augustine, many of you have heard that name, where he gives like a full list of the 66 books of the Bible that we have as canon. Now, here's where I just couldn't believe it. Blew my mind. It's not until 1647 at Westminster, in the Confession of Westminster, that excludes the Apocrypha, which is the, the, the little ad in the, the Catholic Bible, which includes Tobit and Wisdom of Solomon and Maccabees. It's not until 1600 that that's excluded, and we get 66 books called the Bible as Protestant Christians. Now, friends, in 1500, Martin Luther himself was arguing vehemently that Scripture, um, James, Jude, Revelation, Hebrews, Esther, that they should be taken out of the canon. Martin Stephen Luther is arguing in 1500 that some of these books should be taken out of the canon. Here's my whole point in this. I'm sitting in class, TS 101, first theology class I have in seminary, and we're talking about the canonization of the Scripture, how we got this book. And I'm sitting there seeing this, learning these things, and I'm thinking to myself, good Lord, have mercy. Am I the only one in the room who's wondering if we got a background check on some of these folks at these councils? <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like, who's to say that one or two or five of them didn't have a couple at the, at the pub down the road before they came to the council? Right? I mean, you may think that's not funny. <laughs> but here's my point. I'm thinking to myself, if I hear what you're saying, what you're asking me to do when you say the Bible says it and so it's authoritative is essentially to trust that all these people along the way got it right. 
that it's actually 66 books and not 67, that there isn't one out there that should have been in there, or that we got one that we shouldn't have. And I'm sort of in seminary, training to be a pastor, wondering, like, I don't even know if I believe in this book anymore. And maybe you're here this morning, and all your questions are answered. That's great. God bless you. <laughs> but for me, they weren't. And I started thinking about, like, well, why, why do I believe that this book has any authority? And I, I remember asking my prof, I said, Joel, what I hear you saying is, Basically, you're asking me to believe and trust that the Holy Spirit was guiding this process with these fallible human beings to the degree that we got what we needed. And he's like, yep, pretty much. Which, I mean, that's a beautiful way to say it, I think. But even still, if you're here this morning and you have questions about the scriptures, I would just say to you, well, good on you. You're going to be okay. I think that you can hold on to the authority of the scriptures and, and, and uh, 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 a belief in and a commitment to the Bible even if you have some unanswered questions. If you affirm something behind the text as the foundation of your belief. If you believe, if, you're, if the foundation of your belief is in the scriptures, scripture alone, I would say that that's... That's, uh, that's shaky. That's not to say anything about the nature of the Bible, but I think that there's something deeper than that. If the foundation of your belief is in the God behind the text, now we're cooking. Now you can affirm the, the authority of the scriptures or the beauty of the scriptures or the fact that it's helpful for teaching and rebuking and for the people of God to live as a perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct, even with some of your questions about the scriptures. So the book that we hold in our hands, if I'm just going to be totally honest with you, it's 66 books, 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament, and I am firmly committed and believe in the idea that the Holy Spirit of God was active in the process to get us what we needed for God to continue to reveal God's self to us as the church. Maybe that's not good enough or not deep enough or not big enough I'll offer that to you for your consideration this morning. The nature of the book. Now, what about the nature of the God behind the book? Let's come back to those questions. Why is, what's the point of the Bible? Why is it helpful? Why is it useful? Why is it authoritative? Why is it transformative? Why is it powerful? If we hang the whole argument on 2 Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed, it's inspired, it's infallible, it's inerrant. I, I think it can go deeper than that. I want to submit to you that there's a more solid foundation for our love and commitment to the scriptures. And lo and behold, no surprise, I would argue that it's centered directly in the person of Jesus. I want to talk, as I close and sort of talk about the nature of God, I want to introduce this idea to you, maybe it's in an introduction, maybe it's not, a theology of revelation. And I'm not talking about the last book in the Bible. I'm talking about the nature of God. There's a guy named Karl Barth who was a theologian in the 1900s during World War II. And he talked about this idea of revelation. And in order of importance, the, the last one is the most important for him. Okay, And here they are. And I would totally agree with him on this. He talked about the word of God preached. The word of God preached. So the word of God preached is essentially this. When the word of God, and he would say capital W, when the word of God is preached in and for the church, 
coupled with the work of the Holy Spirit, what we have is an act of revelation. An act of revelation. That God is revealing God's self to the church, to the people of God, to anyone who has ears to hear when the scriptures are preached and the Holy Spirit is active in the process. We have the word of God preached. Then he would go down and he would say, the word written. The Bible in and of itself, the word written, what does he mean? The Old and New Testament writers were in concert with the Holy Spirit. So the Old and New Testament, the Holy Spirit, these two things were coming together and it was a, a, a symbiotic relationship, a concert of sorts, where God is revealing God's self in and through the writing of the, this text. Insofar as the Spirit of God is active in the reading of the word, what we have is an act of revelation, a moment, a revelatory act where God is offering God's self to you and I through the text. So the word of God written. Then he would say the ultimate is the word of God revealed in Jesus. That the ultimate revelation of God, the pinnacle, is Jesus the Christ. And so when you want to know anything about God, when you want to hear God's voice, when you want to see God's face, the ultimate revelation of that is the person of Jesus. And so then the Bible is authoritative and powerful and transformative because and only because it attests to and affirms, tells the story of the revelation of God in Jesus. That's why it has power. That's why it's authoritative. That's why it transforms. Bart would say that God may well choose to speak through the scriptures or a sonata or a donkey, and you would be wise to listen to him if he should choose to do so. His point is that God is interested, and I would say it this way, uh, uh, there's three levels kind of how I make sense of it. God is interested in revealing. Sometimes we think about God and we're like, is God hiding God's self? Like, why can't, why can't I experience you? Why, where are you? The heart of God, the nature of God, is, to, uh, is a desire to reveal. We see this, I would say, all through the text, in and through Jesus. But this is the very nature of God. God is in the business of revealing God's self to us. If that's true... The word of God, as John talks about it in John 1, is the revelation of Jesus. And then the words of God about Jesus, you could call the Bible. Now friends, our faith is not in the Bible. The Bible is very important. But it should not be on a pedestal, on an altar, just below God and above Jesus. Or the Holy Spirit. Often, in spiritual communities, and, and if I'm honest, if we're honest, I think evangelical communities, the Bible becomes an idol that we bow down to and that we worship almost more than we do the Trinity itself. God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And I think that that is totally upside down. The Bible is authoritative, it's transformative, it's powerful, it's valuable, it's useful. Why? Because it tells the story of the God who's revealing it bears witness. We are a forgetful people. You and I, I forget things all the time. And when we forget, the scriptures help us remember that God is not absent, but God has been faithfully showing up again and again and again and again, over and over and over, saying it's this way back home. May you find the light that will lead you home. Why is the Bible important? Why is it authoritative? Why is it useful? Not because it's some book that you can't ask questions about or it's untouchable. No. 
because it bears witness, it attests to the revelatory act of God in the person of Jesus. That's why it's powerful. That's why it stands at the center of this community and many other Christian communities around the world. I had a roommate in college. His name was Alec. It's the first person I'd ever met where this happened. He was a, a philosophy major, uh, not a follower of God by any stretch of the imagination. He was in community college, and one of his friends challenged him. He said, you know what? You have all these questions, all this skepticism, all this doubt about God and the Bible. Why don't you just read it? Have you ever just read it? And he's like, no, actually. Uh, I haven't read much of it. And he said, well, I challenge you to just read some of it. So Alec, my roommate, wicked smart. I mean, really, really smart guy. He got a PhD from Oxford. He sits down and he just begins to read the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And his life is wrecked in the best sense. God, the divine, somehow gets a hold of his life and turns it from one direction, 180 degrees in another direction. Because God is in the business of revealing God's self. And when the Spirit of God is active in the process of reading the Scripture, we have an act of revelation. That's what God is doing. That's why it's powerful. That's why it's authoritative. That's why it's transformative. Because God's in it. So I would say to you this morning, two questions as we move to silence. Is, if God is interested in revealing, how might God do that today? Maybe it's the scriptures. Maybe it's silence. Maybe it's the noise of the birds. In any case, you would be wise to listen. How is God revealing? If that's the nature of God, what, God, what might God want to reveal to you today? And then two, what is the Bible to you? Maybe today begins a process, a rekindling of a love for the scriptures, where before it was just this thing that people hit you over the head with and tried to argue you into a particular position with. Maybe today's the beginning of a new beginning. A love for this text, which is just, how has it lasted this long? It's, it is literally the single most read work of literature in all of human history. How did it make it? through all of this, through wars and people trying to destroy it, how is it still here? I think that there's something in it. I think it might be divine. So, as you move to silence, a couple of questions for you to ponder. Let me pray with you. We'll invite you to a time of silence and then a time of response as we come to the table. So pray with me. God, as we take a few moments to be still and quiet, in the midst of our busy lives, would you reveal something about who you are to us? Would you speak through words that we've heard today from your scriptures? Maybe through the sound of this water, this living well of water bubbling up, being offered to any and all who are thirsty. Would you reveal yourself to us? And maybe would you rekindle for some of us who need it, or maybe even want it, a, a new and fresh love for the Bible, this story of your activity in and through the world. So God, meet us now as we quiet our hearts. Grace and peace, my friends. May you find God 
revealing God's self in your life and through the scriptures. Maybe the birds, maybe your friends, maybe your family, but may you find God. See ya. Love you. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awakening Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.